Clive wrote to his father as he escorted his loot down the Bhagirathi, telling him that he had brought about a revolution scarcely to be paralleled in history. It was a rather modest claim, but he was not far from wrong. The changes he had effected were permanent and profound. This was the moment when a commercial corporation for the first time had acquired real and tangible political power. The company had triumphantly asserted itself as a strong military force within the Mughal Empire. This initiated a period of unbound looting, asset stripping by the company, which the British themselves described as the shaking of the pagoda tree. Bengal, the sink into which foreign bullion disappeared before 1757, became after Plassey the treasure trove from which vast amount of wealth were drained without any prospect of return. Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of India Colonized. I'm your host, Omar Ha. We bring to you stories and legends from our colonial past. We hope to upload a new episode every week, so stay tuned. And in today's episode, we are going to slip into a battle. A battle that reshaped the course of Indian history and gave our colonial masters the reign of the land. Today's episode is all about Battle of Plassey. Before we understand the battle itself, it is important for us to understand the events that preceded it, what caused this series of dominoes to fall and what resulted in the confrontation between the East India Company and Sirajuddaula. Sirajuddaula was a very sloppy man. He was a man who was known for his indulgences in all kinds of debauchery and for his revolting cruelty. None of the sources of his time have anything good to mention about him. Even his own political ally called him a man with worst reputation imaginable. Jean Law, a French political ally to Sirajuddaula, writes about him as a man of harsh nature, a man who was quick to take offence. He barely trusted anyone and with little to no education, he did not know how to take people into confidence. He regularly insulted his predecessor's commanders, who had served his grandfather really well. His cousin, Ghulam Hussain Khan, and the court historian, writes that he was so intoxicated with youth and power and dominion that he found no distinction between good and bad, between vice and virtue. So much so, when people met him, they would pray against him and ask God to save them from him. One of the greatest errors of Siraj, which he later begins to regret, was his treatment of the Jagat Seth bankers. It was these Seths who had brought Aliwardi Khan to power in Bengal, and that anyone who wished to operate here did really well to cultivate their favour. When Siraj wanted to arm and equip his forces against his cousin, he ordered the bankers to provide him 3 crore rupees which Mehtab Rai said was impossible. Siraj grew angry and he struck Mehtab Rai really hard. Despite such behaviour of Siraj, he held a great sway over his grandfather Ali Wardi Khan. The only surviving grandson from his three daughters, Ali Wardi Khan did not have any sons. 
Suraj from a very young age became the heir apparent to the Subha of Bengal. However, for some time, there was some hope in the courts of Bengal. People thought that Aliwardi Khan would see the behavior of Suraj and appoint his son-in-law, Nawaz Ash Khan, as the governor. But all was to shatter when Siraj was formally declared to be the successor of Aliwardi Khan. Even the company was concerned and anxious about Siraj's behavior. In the March of 1756, when Aliwardi Khan was sick and ridden to bed, he received a report from his visitors of Mughal South about how the Europeans had behaved in Karnatic five years ago. From being useful tools in the hand of Mughal Nawabs, they had become overripe puppet masters, creating and discarding rival rulers at their whim and fancies. This created a great impression on Ali Wali Khan, who had been really welcoming of these Europeans. And when the news arrived that the East India Company was caught making unauthorized repairs and completely rebuilding the walls of Calcutta, he called Siraj Adala swiftly and wrote to the French and English, asking them to abandon the plans and to start dismantling the fortifications immediately. The French hesitate, but they began to oblige. But Governor Drake of the East India Company wrote back saying, and I quote, we cannot think of submitting to a demand of such unprecedented nature. Infuriated by the response, Ali Wardi Khan summoned Narayan Singh. Narayan Singh was one of his most trusted diplomats. And for the last time, Ali Wardi Khan decided to try to solve the matters diplomatically and to explain to the company what was the status of merchants in the Mughal kingdom and to outline to them the consequences that would come if the company did not do what was asked. Ali Wardi Khan passed away in 1756 April. The same evening, Siraj decided that he would attack his aunt Gashti Begum. That, he decided, would be his first act as the Nawab of Bengal. Seizing all of his jewellery and money, the very next month, he started preparing to march to attack one of his cousins who he perceived as a potential rival and threat to his rule. On his way, he met Narayan Singh. The same Narayan Singh who was sent by Aliwardi Khan to the company. Narayan Singh complained to the new Nawab about Drake's behavior. Drake had sent him out of the city even without an audience. Infuriated as Siraj gets usually, he turned back and in one night's march besieged the English factory of Qasim Bazar. While Siraj's army grew with reinforcements, it grew up to 30,000 strong and only 200 men were present in the factory to defend it. Eventually, William Watts, person in charge of the factory, made an unconditional surrender to the Nawab. He was made to hug Siraj's leg and cry for mercy. Tomar Ghulam Saheb, Tomar Ghulam, cried William. The factory was then opened and ransacked. All the residents were arrested and put behind bars. 
Siraj then sent an envoy to Calcutta, and this time to warn them to remain submissive to his rules or risk expulsion from the state. He wanted the English to remain like the Armenians before him, who had remained subjected merchant community, relying not on their own fortification, but on Mughal governor for their protection of trade. Drake did not even bother to reply. Sensing what happened at Khasim Bazaar was a mere bluff played by Siraj to gain the goodwill of his courtiers as the new Nawab. So much so that he did not even prepare the defences of the fort. One of the civilians of Calcutta, William Took, writes about Drake of being deeply unpopular and he mentions him to being such a divisive figure and I quote, that it was practically impossible for him to organize a coherent defense. Siraj Dola personally arrived on 16th June. He called upon his artillery, directed them and began firing into the town. After two attempts with heavy casualties, Siraj's troops were able to cross the Maratha ditch that surrounded the black town and he did was he comprehensively looted it. 18th March, Mughal forces advanced toward the fort. Company retreated with heavy losses and a small party bravely defended it for six hours. Most of the men were wounded and retired. And at late night after the collapse of the first offence, a council of war was established and met within the fort. They assessed that they had only three days worth of ammunition and that their men were either injured or drunk blind. So drunk that when the drums of war were beaten, none of them answered. Hardly a man could get up onto the ramparts. The next day when the Nawab's general pressed, the council argued in the favour of abandoning the fort altogether. Just as the council was discussing, a huge cannonball burst through the chambers. It created panicked confusion and had taken over and had taken down the morale of the English, which had now hit rock bottom. Many of them started heading to ships and boats and began to flee, including Drake and the commander of the troop, Minchin. Ghulam Hussein writes about Drake that he fled without so much as giving a notice to his own countrymen. Under the command of John Hallwell, the roughly remaining 150 members in the garrison continued to give resistance. Mid-afternoon, many of the defenders were dead and exhausted from strength and vigour. Close to four o'clock now, Mir Jafar's troops called out to hold fire, to which Holwell replied with a flag of truce and gave orders for the garrisons not to fire. Siraj's troops began to plunder and took everything that they could set their eyes on inside the fort. Siraj then held a grand darbar and renamed Calcutta as Alinagar. After Imam Ali, appropriately named for a prominent city of a Shia-ruled Suba, 
After this, he appointed Raj Manikchand as the fort keeper of Alignagar. So far, the surrender of the garrison went well, unusually well for Mughal standards. There was no immediate enslavement, no execution, no beheading, and no torture. Many of the members of the garrison were still blind drunk, and one of them shot his Mughal plunderer to death. Immediately, things took turn for the worst. All the survivors were herded into a small cell, 18 feet long, 14 feet wide, a single window. This was the infamous incident of the black hole. Hallwell wrote a bloated account of the incident, writing that 145 company men were shoved inside, of whom 123 had died. A recent study shows that only 64 of the people entered the cell, of whom 21 survived. It was not just a loss of life and prestige. It was the trauma and humiliation that horrified the company. The news of Hassan Bazar and the request for military assistance reached Madras on 14th July. A complete month later, on 16th, they received the news of Calcutta. In any normal circumstances, Madras would have sent a delegation to Murshidabad, making negotiations, sending apologies, making assurances. But as fate would have it, Robert Clive and his three regiments of Royal Artillery arrived at Coromandel Coast to St. David, south of Madras. Accompanying them was Admiral Watson's flotilla of fully armed, battle-ready men of war. The troops, along with Robert Clive and Admiral Watson, were at Madras to fight the French, not the Nawab of Bengal. Several members of Madras Council argued that the fleet should stay in Madras, lest that they should lose another strong fort by an attack of French. Without these troops here to protect the fort, it would be an act of extreme carelessness to leave St. David undefended. Clive was not going to lose this chance. He personally had invested substantial sums in Bengal and indirectly in company stock. He forcefully and successfully argued to let these forces move up to Bengal. Admiral Watson, however, insisted that they wait until the monsoon was set in early October, when the French would dare not sail in open waters, which would give them enough time to finish the task in Bengal and return, and not be guilty of leaving Madras at the risk of naked aggression. The Select Committee of Madras shared the ambition of Clive and wrote to London to the company directors. The letter read, and I quote, The mere taking of Calcutta, should we think, be by no means the end of undertaking. Not only should the Bengal settlements and factories be restored, but all the privileges established in full and ample reparations be made for all the losses they have lately sustained. Otherwise, we are of the opinion that it would have been better that nothing had been attempted. Two months with all detailed planning, refitting ships, loading cannons, eventually setting sail 
on 13th October but the same monsoon winds which were to surprise the French blew all the ships scattered even some of them until the shore of Sri Lanka two months later on 9th December the first ship arrived in Hooghly eventually the rest of the ships followed while waiting for the rest two ships which carried the bulk of artillery and troops Clive wrote to Raja Manikchand the fort keeper of Alinagar he wrote that he had come with a force to be reckoned with one which never in such strength appeared on the lands of Bengal but all of this had very little effect on Manikchand as Ghulam Hussain observes that the english were only known to be mere merchants and no one had an idea of the abilities of war that nation had with receiving no reply on 27 december clive sailed up the river and by sunset reached near the fort it was there that manikchan sprung an ambush and surprisingly attacked the troops clive was quite rattled almost ordering a retreat but the new brown bass musket won the day and alarmed the raja he was even shot in his turban with manikchan fled watson's ship unleashed on the both side of the fort the fleet proceeded further up and two of siraj's forts were abandoned without a fight 2nd january the squadron came in sight of fort william manikchan again withdrew but after a brief resistance nevertheless half ruined calcutta by siraj's previous attack was now back in the hands of company on 2nd january 1757 on 3rd january robert clive declared war on siraj ud-daula in the name of company and watson did the same in the name of crown this was the first time that the east india company had declared a formal war on an indian prince The chess board of time presented a new game observes Ghulam Hussain Khan. Clive started preparing the walls of Fort William, demolishing all the buildings which overlooked its walls. Clive and Watson then set off to attack Siraj ud-Daula's principal fort, Hooghly Bandar. Once again, Clive was able to become the master of the place in less than an hour. On a full moon night, they set about looting and burning the ports. And full 2 weeks later, Siraj ud-Daula on 23rd came into Calcutta with an army of 60,000 strong. Clive was quite surprised by the forces and the speed that they had caught to be outside Calcutta already. Two senior company negotiators were sent at the Nawab's invitation to speak with him, but Siraj treated them with such mixture of haughtiness and contempt. which gave little hopes of making any great progress in their business clive asked watson for 500 sailors and ammunition with artillery to which watson agreed both of them attacked the nawab's camp the next day and with the thick early winter morning fog blowing off the river hooghly by 11 am clive's forces had returned dispirited to the city having lost almost 150 men the events in which including clive secretary and his personal men were killed by his side 
Fly was rather unsure of what happened in this thick fog as they shot wildly into gloom of unclear mess. They were unsure if they were hitting or missing the targets. According to Ghulam Hussain Khan and the Mughal sources, the two men, Clive and Siraj, though ever so close, could not distinguish each other. The darkness made them mistake their way and missed Siraj Dola's private enclosure, and the prince had a narrow escape. Unknown to Clive at this time, if the attack was in fact a divisive turning point, Siraj struck camp and retreated 10 miles that morning. He sent an ambassador with a proposal for peace. And on February 9th, he signed what is known as the Treaty of Alinagar, which granted almost all the company's demands, restoring all existing English privileges, freeing all English goods of taxes, as well as allowing the company to keep their fortifications and establish a mint. His only insistence was that Drake be removed. Tell Roger Drake not to disturb our affairs, said Siraj something the company was more than happy to grant. The next morning, Siraj began to march back to Murshidabad, leaving Clive and Watson astonished at their own success. He was ready to return to Madras, having fulfilled all his war aims and with minimum cost in casualties. Clive writes to his father on 23rd February, I expect to return very shortly to the coast as all is over here. But all was not over. Watson, who reported to the crown and not the company, just received an official notice of the outbreak of what the future generations would call the Seven Years' War between England and France. Around the world, from Quebec to Senegal River, from Ohio to Hanover, from Menorca to Cuba, hostility is now finally breaking out between Britain and France in every imperial theatre. Watson now knew what he needed to do. What he needed to do was to attack the French wherever they were to be found. In the case of Bengal, that meant starting by attacking the French colony of Chandernagar, 20 miles upstream. What happened at Chandernagar and the victory of Clive and Watson over the fort of the Orleans is a story of a different episode. Once, after they were successfully done with taking down the French in Bengal, and them never returning again. And as April drew close, Clive and Watson began to back up and prepare the troops to leave Bengal. They were quite nervous about how long they had left Madras undefended and open to the French. But fate had written something else. Siraj Dola's flight from Calcutta after Clive's night attack, followed by the humiliation of the Treaty of Alinagar, had broken the spell of fear with which Siraj had kept his court. He had alienated many of Ali Wardi Khan's old military commander, including Mir Ali Khan, who was sidelined after having won and defeated the company in battle, and the governorship of the fort rather given to his rival Raja Manikchand. Ghulam Hussain Khan writes 
that the people wished no better than to get rid of him, of the government, by even Siraj's death. The Jagat Seth bankers conspired against Siraj to remove him as the Nawab of Bengal along with his own courtiers. The all-powerful dynasty of the bankers were now colluding with the members of the royal court to have Siraj replaced as the Nawab of Bengal. The plotters had began to look for support first and when they looked out at Aliwardi Khan's daughter Gashti Begum, but then Siraj had moved so quickly to eliminate her, their options remained limited. But what was open was now the help of Robert Clive. Now that they had seen Robert Clive demonstrate his military capacity in taking back Calcutta and seizing Chander Nagar, the plotters decided to go out to the company and asked them to help remove Sirajuddaullah using the company's military forces for their own ends. Mir Jaffa was ready to offer the company a humongous sum of 2.5 crores, which roughly is equal to 10 million pounds in today, if they would help remove the Nawab. Further investigation only brought out that Mir Jaffa was a mere face in the real force behind the coup, the Jagat Seth bankers. The cause of the English had become one with that of the state. Watson's passed on the offer to Clive, who was still encamped outside Chander Nagar, and who had also quite independently began to hear rumblings about possible palace revolution. Writing to the governor of Madras, Clive observed that Sirajuddaullah was behaving in an even more violent way than usual and twice a week threatened to impale Mr. Watson. And he wrote so on. He wrote to the Madras committee in order to get their confidence to move ahead with whatever coup was being planned and how he was approached by Jagat Seth to help in executing this plan of palace revolution. The bankers and the merchants of Bengal who sustained Sirajuddaullah's regime until now had finally turned against him and united with the disaffected parts of his own military. A group of Indian financiers plotting with international trading cooperation was something quite new in Indian history. In fact, East India Company men on the ground were ignoring the strict instructions from London, which clearly stated that they were only there to repulse French attacks and to avoid potentially ruinous wars with their Mughal hosts. When the secret committee began to hackle over the terms of service, Mir Jafar and Jagat Seth had significantly raised their sums of the promised sum to 28 million rupees or 3 million sterlings and the entire annual revenue of Bengal for their help to overthrow Siraj. They threw a further 100,000 rupees a month for the company troops. In addition to this, East India Company was to get Zamindari 
that is landholding rights near Calcutta in payment and confirmation of a duty-free trade. Mir Jaffa considered to pay the company a further enormous amount of one million pounds as a compensation for the loss of Calcutta and another half a million pounds in compensation to the affected European settlers. Later settled, an Englishman was carried into Mir Jaffer's house to get the signatures of the old general and his son Miran and to take their formal oath on the Quran. As a part of fulfilling their part of the treaty obligation. The signed document was then brought back in Calcutta in front of the select committee who then countersigned it. Watson and his men set out pretending to be on a hunting expedition and made their escape through the night down the road to Chandernagar. 13 June 1757 It's been a year since Siraj had attacked on Calcutta. Clive sent an ultimatum to Siraj, accusing him of breaking the terms of the Treaty of Alinagar, here mentioning that he had chosen the side of French during the siege of Chandernagar. That very day, with a small army of 800 Europeans, 2,200 South Indian sepoys and only 8 cannons, he began his historic march towards Plassey. In the scorching pre-monsoon heat, Clive marched his sepoys along the shaded embankments, during which Clive began to get nervous by increasingly ominous silence from the plotters. June 15th, Clive writes to reassure the Jagat Seth that he remained committed to the terms that they had agreed. There was no reply from the Jagat Sets. The next day, he wrote again, and this time to Mir Jafar, and I quote, I am in expectation of your news and shall enter into any measure you desire. Let me hear from you twice a day. I shall not start from Patli till I have any news from you. Once again, there was no reply. Clive was now becoming suspicious. He writes again, and I quote, I am arrived at Patli with all my forces, and I am very much surprised at not hearing from you, and I expect that on the receipt of this, you will acquaint me fully with your intentions. He got nothing but silence. Clive then decided to send his platoons north on the 18th and to take the fort of Katwa. He seized it without any opposition. It was here that Mir Jafar was supposed to meet the company forces, but there was no sign of reply from this ally. Clive was beginning to go into a crisis of confidence. He wrote to the select committee in Calcutta, and I quote, I am really at a loss how to act at the present situation of our affairs. Later that night, Clive received a letter from Mir Jaffa. Although it was very ambiguous, this note relieved Clive initially to have heard anything from Mir Jaffa. 
then he began to go into suspicion as to what was the meaning of the letter that Mir Jafar had written to Clive. On 21st June, Clive called the Council of War to decide whether to continue the campaign or not. They were now just one day's march away from the mango plantation of Plassey, where Sirad's army had swollen into a 50,000 safely entrenched. Clive spent the night with indecision. Rather than waiting and deciding to press, he decided to move into action regardless. After some time, a short message had come from Mir Jafar that he was committed himself to bring into action. To which Mir Jafar had written, and I quote, When you come near, I shall be able to join you. Later, Clive ordered his sepoys to move forward. The sepoys marched into liquid waterscape where island and land appeared to be afloat amid network of streams and rivers fish-filled, lily-littered of poker ponds. The night passed and the morning broke and there was no reply from Mir Jafar. 7 a.m. Anxious Clive wrote threatening the general saying that he would make up with Siraj if Mir Jafar continued to do nothing and remain silent. He writes, and I quote, I'll march from Plassey to meet you, but if you won't comply with us, pardon me, sir, I should make it up with the Nawab. However, it was too late. The Nawab's forces began to appear. Thousands emerged from their entrenchment and they began to circle. The small company force was outnumbered, at least 20 to one. Clive got upon a terrace where he estimated that the Nawab had got 35,000 infantry, 15,000 in cavalry, 53 pieces of heavy artillery, which was superintended by a team of French experts. 8 a.m. There was no exit. For Clive knew that there was no realistic option but to fight. Towards the noon, the sky began to darken. Thunder busted. Monsoon broke. The battlefield completely muddy. The company troops made sure to keep their powder and fuses dry under the tarpaulin. However, the Mughals did not. All of Sirad's guns had fallen completely silent. Expecting that Clive's gun would have been disabled by the monsoon, Mir Madan, the commander of Nawab's cavalry, ordered 5,000 of his elite Afghan horses charging the company's right. With all of this, the fire of battle was out in flames. Among those killed was Mir Madan himself, as he would hit by a cannonball in his stomach while he tried to push to the front. Siraj Dola's army retreated and the artillerymen carrying corpses of Mir Madan moved into their tents. 
Major Kilpatrick, seeing several mobile batteries abandoned, defied the orders of Clive and without his permission, advanced to hold the abandoned positions. Clive was furious, threatening to arrest him for insubordination. But it was this act of disobedience that would win the battle for the company. The guns which had been annoying the English since the morning had fallen silent and into the hands of English. All of a sudden, a huge contingent of Mughal cavalry on the left of Sirad's army began to move away down the bank of Hooghly and left fighting. Turns out it was Mir Jafar after all who was holding what he had promised. All the Murshidabad's forces were now beginning to fall back. Large body of Mughal infantry now began to run scatter and flee. Chaos had taken over. It caused a stampede. Clive wrote in his initial report that he pursued the enemy six miles pressing upwards. Forty pieces of cannons, an infinite number of hackeries and carriages filled with baggages of all kinds had been abandoned. Siraj Dalla escaped on a camel reaching Murshidabad early the next morning. Accompanied with only three of his attendants, he carried whatever jewellery he conveniently could grasp. 24th June, the next morning, Clive wrote a letter to Mir Jafar, insincere, yet congratulating him on the victory, which he believed was neither of Mir Jafar's nor of his own. After this victory, Clive and company were to be paid full compensation and this could only come through if it were to be brokered by the Jagat Seth of Bengal. As the treasury of Murshidabad had only one and a half crores in them, the money Clive personally made was 234,000 pounds as well as a land in Jagir whose annual amount was around 27,000 pounds. Personally, at the age of 33, Clive was all of a sudden about to become one of the richest men not only in England but in entire Europe. Clive was clearly anxious about Mir Jafar. He worried that he would default on his promise and that he was again in the danger of being double-crossed by the old general. Meanwhile, Mir Jafar's son Miran followed Siraj Dola, who had fled the capital. Siraj Dola, dressed in his menial dress, attended by one of his favorite concubine. Khulam Hussein Khan writes how after Plassey, Siraj found himself alone in the palace. For an entire day without a single friend to talk to, not a single companion to lay his mind off to. As a desperate resolution, he vacated the palace three in the morning and fled to Bhagwan Gola. Two days later, Sirajuddola had got off to have some food, hungry that they were from three days with his family. 
Dressed up a little better, he was invited at the house of a faqir in the neighborhood. The faqir was disobliged and depressed during the days of Siraj's power. He was overwhelmed with the joy of having revenge served home. And he sent for the news of his arrival to his enemies about Siraj Dola's presence and his quarters. Shahdana, the fakir, Mir Qasim, the son-in-law of Mir Jafar, crossed the waters, catching Siraj Dola, surrounding him with men in arms. Dreaded Siraj sought mercy and asked to be let alone and retire away in peace, promising never to disturb the prince. He was shackled and was brought back to Murshidabad in wretched condition. One Mahmud Beg accepted the commission to kill Siraj. As Siraj humbled himself before the author of all mercies, asked for pardon for his past conduct, turning to his murderer asked, They are not then satisfied with my being willing to retire into some corner, there to an end my days with a pension. It was then that the man struck his saber and cut his head off. His face fell on the ground and his soul returned to its maker by wading through his own blood. His body was hacked into pieces and by strokes without number and was mangled carcass being thrown across the back of an elephant was carried throughout the city. Siraj was only 25 years old. Shortly afterwards, Miran wiped out all the women of the house of Ali Wardi Khan. Seventy innocent Begums were rowed out to a lonely place into a center of Hooghly and their boat sunk. The rest were poisoned. These bodies were brought together with those of which were washed ashore and then buried together in a long life line of sepulchres beside the old patriarch in the shady garden of Khushbagh. The same day, the remains of Siraj Dola were paraded through the streets. Clive finally got hands on his money and this was one of the largest corporate windfalls in history. Bengal had always produced the biggest and easily collectible revenue surplus in Mughal Empire. After Plassey, this became of the Britishers' source for all their ill-conceived plans that they had of becoming a dominant military and political forces in Bengal. They could probably seize any part of the country that they took fancy to with an army that they could grow out of sufficiently from the revenue of Bengal. Bengal was beginning to destabilize. The new Nawab sitting on the chair of his master's blood. It was quite clear that Mir Jafar was not up to the job. No matter how many members of Siraj's regime were put out, there could not be any legitimacy for a general who had his own Nawab murdered. From now on, there would be a slow drift a drift to the company of troops, merchants, bankers, civil servants, 
leaving the Nawab with nothing more than the shadow of his former grandeur. But what they had done inside was fatally and permanently undermine the authority of Nawab and brought in chaos to what had been, until this point, the most peaceful and the most profitable part of the old Mughal Empire. And this brings us to the end of our today's episode. A huge shout out to William Dalimple's book, The Anarchy. At the end of every episode, we're going to suggest one book that you can read to dwell deeper into the episode that we just covered. If you want to know more information or if you have anything to let us know, please feel free to contact me. The contact details are given below in the description. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter for more updates and do consider subscribing. Thank you for listening. Have a good day.